According to the Farm Service Agency of the USDA, nearly 3% or 35.2 million acres of U.S. farmland is foreign-owned as of December of 2019. Several states have enacted laws or introduced legislation to limit foreign ownership of farmland in the U.S. The National Agricultural Law Center joins us on Our Ohio Weekly this week to provide a status report on those laws and where Ohio stands on the issue of foreign-owned ag land. From the Ohio Farm Bureau studio, this is Our Ohio Weekly, highlighting those who grow our food, fiber, and fuel, while examining issues that are important for farmers and their neighbors throughout the Buckeye State. Our Ohio Weekly is supported by Nationwide. Nationwide is on your side. Here's Our Ohio Weekly host, Ty Higgins. Ownership of U.S. land, specifically agricultural lands, by foreign persons or entities has been an issue dating back to the origins of the U.S. In fact, states began passing laws regulating the ownership of ag land as early as the 1920s, and Congress passed the Foreign Investment Disclosure Act in 1978. How is foreign ownership of agricultural land calculated, and how is it regulated? To talk about these topics in more detail is Harrison Pittman, director of the National Agricultural Law Center. Harrison, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. It is a, a very interesting topic, and we'll get into all the details in a little bit. But first of all, what is the National Agricultural Law Center? The National Agricultural Law Center, we are a research and information center that uh, does all agricultural and food law all day, every day. Um, we are, we've been in place since 1987. We, uh, we have a longstanding partnership with USDA. We're primarily funded through federal appropriation. Our mission is to serve as the nation's leading source for agricultural and food law research and information. So we're a nonpartisan entity and the work that we do, you know, we're obviously passionate about agriculture and the industry as a whole, but, but we don't, we don't weigh in. We don't do advocacy. We don't, we don't represent, we don't have clients. We don't lobby, uh, but we work for everybody in agriculture from all commodities all the way out into state ag departments, state farm bureaus, national groups, policymakers at the federal and state level and, and on and on. So um, this foreign ownership is just one of numerous issues that, you know, what we deal with. And we just try to be an educational resource to the agricultural community. What made you want to dive into that particular topic? Um, few things. Uh, th but the basic thing is I could see it as it was trending again. You know, uh, that's a benefit to, you know, I've been at the center for 20 years and we've developed relationships with individuals and groups around the country. And, you know, uh, it's not an empirical poll, but when I can tell, you know, when an issue is starting to percolate, you know, that maybe you're being asked all of a sudden to speak to a, a county committee for, for a farm bureau, uh, at the grassroots level or someone in the ag department is asking about it and of course in this last year during during the 2020 session we saw at least three states and arkansas was one of them and so that one just was front front and center and to really help uh, our stakeholders in the state of arkansas you know you really had to pull in this full body of knowledge and resources to to speak to it you know we did a lot of work on it in in terms of the issues here in Arkansas, but Tennessee, they had a bill proposed and there was a lot of inquiries in, in that, as did Missouri, but Missouri's isn't new. In other words, they've had some back in 2013 in that range, they, they've made some significant changes to their law. They're still tinkering with it or trying to. So it's just an issue that you just see emerging. You see, even on the federal level, you know, with uh, the appropriations language that still isn't final, but it's in the current framework 
that would really target Chinese companies and, and ownership of ag interests, not necessarily land, but we're really talking about at the retail level. I guess in theory it could, but typically it wouldn't. So I think it's an issue that's just, it's trending up again um, as it has in over the past couple of centuries and will, as long as we get to be a country. And I think this will keep coming up. Yeah, you mentioned it's not new, and then you mentioned a couple of centuries. We're talking back to the beginning of our country where this was yeah. an issue. Give us some historical context yeah. of, of foreign ownership and how it fits into the Constitution. Yeah, so this is Harrison's rendition of, of world history here, so <laughs> don't, don't expect it to be too nuanced. But, you know, you know, basically, you know, our ancestors, we, you know, broke away from England, broke away from the king, and came to this, this new place at modern-day United States, but... Uh, you know, at the time, as it evolved, became the 13, you know, colonies. Uh, and there was a lot of friction there where, you had, on the one hand, the crown wanting to really control as colonies, uh, as an extension of, of England. And you had these new folks who, guess what? They were kind of the foreigners and there were more coming. And uh, people wanted, you know, to own property and become citizens and enjoy all the things that came with that. But they had to have approval from the crown for that. And uh, there was certainly resistance to, to uh, approving those. And uh, those weren't the only issues at that time period. But, you know, if, if a person goes back and actually reads the Declaration of Independence of the various things they cite, there's one in particular. And, I, and if you know the historical context, there's really two uh, provisions because the colonies were trying to pass laws, but those also had to be essentially ratified. Uh, by the crown and, and they wouldn't do so. And so uh, this was one of the precipitating uh, factors leading to the Declaration of Independence being signed and sent, a revolutionary war fought after that. And, you know, if you go in towards the Civil War era and, and then, you know, post-Civil War and more expansion westward, you'll start to see these, you know, these laws being more and more on the books. And so some of this you'll see in current law, some of the language, some of the ideas of the time, but there was a real concern in that 1860s period of particularly large European interest purchasing large amounts of land and either purchasing so much that they could frustrate the ability for that to become a state uh, and gain statehood. And other times it might frustrate, uh, you know, its functioning as a territory and, and that they feared that they might be large enough to create essentially a colony. That's you see that and you come into the 20th century and, and, you know, some of it is kind of dark in a sense that, you know, a lot of it was just sort of discriminatory against people of, of Chinese or Oriental or, or Japanese descent, you know, specifically targeting those individuals from owning property. Uh, those laws are not on the books anymore. But you can kind of see as the country moves westward, you know, over its in its geography and over time, how these laws have spiked up to where we are today. And, I, you know, I think in the 1970s, we saw a lot of interest too. And back then it was it had a lot to do with uh, the OPEC countries, you know, and, and they were gaining a lot of wealth in the oil industry and purchasing land. And there were some press releases and media attention that got people's attention. And ultimately that helped feed into really the most significant statute the United States has passed, which is the Agricultural Foreign Disclosure Investment Act, which is simply a reporting law. You know, that certain foreign persons, and that has a, obviously a definition with it, but they are required to report their purchase. They're not, it doesn't prohibit or restrict. Uh, but that's where all of our data that we have to work from today 
that is where it comes from, except for in a few instances, there are states that also require some reporting that can be a little different than what the federal government has, but pretty much we operate off that federal data. Ohio has roughly 485,000 acres of agricultural land, privately held agricultural land. Uh, that's roughly 2.3% uh, of its overall ag acreage, according to the, you know, the data from USDA. It has a small, uh, fairly modest increase from 2018 uh, by about 48,000 acres. The countries that are listed in the, in the USDA data, Canada, the Netherlands, Italy, the UK, Germany. Uh, and then there's this category, and I think this gets into where more data could be helpful of all others. <laughs> it doesn't specify the country, it's just, uh, but Canada, to put this in some perspective, Canada is about 54,000 acres. The Netherlands is roughly 65,000. Italy is roughly 10,000 acres, the UK almost 6,000 acres, Germany around 77,000 acres, but all others are 284,323 acres. Um, and so, um, and bear in mind, in terms of ownership, some of this can really, it may not be fee tight, you may not actually own the land, it could be a long-term lease, at least of 10 years or more. And so a lot of this can really be reflected, particularly in Ohio, with uh, wind energy and, and solar energy, which I know has been an increasing area in that part of the country. And so uh, that can account for a lot of the, of the land. Uh, I don't know how much, but you'll have, you know, leases for much longer than 10 years, uh, you know, for development rights and so forth uh, that can be attached to, to foreign investors for sure. Talking about foreign ownership of agricultural land this week on Our Ohio Weekly, Harrison Pittman is the director of the National Agricultural Law Center. And Harrison, let's bring us to present day now. Where do we stand as far as foreign ownership of U.S. ag land and, and who owns it? So right now, in our latest data, by the way, this would be interesting, I think, to, to your listeners. The latest data we have is December 31st, 2019. So everything I'm talking about is two years old. Uh, I don't know why the more recent data has not been released. Uh, you know, that's a, a function of, um, it's a USDA function, I'm sure. Economic Research Service puts out the reports, but Farm Service Agency collects the data. So perhaps COVID and, and uh, you know, slowed things down. I'm, so I'm not sure. So today we stand at a little north of 35 million acres uh, nationwide is in foreign ownership. And who owns it? Your biggest players are typically Canada, Italy, Germany, the Netherlands. Those are some of your more significant players. And that's been true for decades. Now, it can differ and depend on what state you're in. For example, states like Arkansas, our primary area of foreign ownership is in the forestry sector. And a lot of that's tied to Canadian investors. And a lot of forestry is going to be tied into that Canadian sector. Maine is kind of an outlier. Um, after doing all this work and looking at all this state by state, I think Maine is just kind of like South Canada. Uh, <laughs> you know, basically, um, I mean, if you took Maine out of the picture, it would move the needle in the overall data nationwide. They're roughly 10% just by themselves. And that's primarily forestry land and Canadian-owned interests. Um, so, you know, you, it depends on your state when you dr drill down because 
the data will be broken down into cropland, forestry, and uh, pasture land. And so forestry tends to be the largest, usually about 50%. And then cropland and pasture land are usually around 25% of that overall number. Uh, they move just a little bit, but, uh, but that's where they are. That 35 million acres that I mentioned a moment ago, um, it's the highest it's been in terms of being reported. Uh, you know, if you go back to when the data was initially begun uh, to be collected, we were closer to like 13 or 14 million total acres. Um, it's gradually increased. Uh, I think it's either 2006 or 2009 is the first time it really broke. I think it was 16 million acres. You know, so it's really in the last decade or so, it's effectively doubled. And so uh, for better or for worse, the pace is picked up. And within all that data, one thing I would mention, if you look at the, the patterns around 2007, you know, like 2007 and 2008, that was a big leap, uh, bigger than the leap uh, that we've had even like between 2018 and 2019. I speculate that that was a response to the, the US and world economy really constricted during that time, you know, the Great Recession or the Second Great Depression, however it gets called. Uh, and I suspect that a lot of that money was just useless on in, on Wall Street. And uh, there weren't very many investment tools uh, that were as steady or as good as, as, as land. So that's my guess as to why there's a sudden influx. More with Harrison Pittman, director of the National Agricultural Law Center, after this on Our Ohio Weekly. Proposed legislation in Congress would eliminate stepped-up basis and tax capital gains at death as ways to raise revenue for government spending. What type of impact would these changes have on family farms? Robert Moore is an attorney with Wright & Moore. And Robert, let's start with what stepped-up basis is. The concept is, and I'll use an example, let's say you buy a farm for $100,000. Well, the tax basis is $100,000, but then let's say it appreciates to a $500,000 value. Well, the tax basis is still $100,000, the fair market value is $500,000, and the difference is the gain that you pay tax on. So. Basically, you pay tax on the difference between the fair market value and the tax basis. The stepped up portion is when somebody dies, the tax basis gets a step up to the fair market value. So uh, when somebody dies and they own that $100,000 piece of land, the tax basis goes from $100,000 to $500,000. Let me use machinery as another example. So let's say uh, somebody inherits $500,000 worth of machinery and it was purchased for $100,000. With the stepped up basis, they get a tax basis of $500,000. They can redepreciate all that $500,000 again or sell the equipment for $500,000 and not pay any tax on it. If the new legislation was passed, they could not redepreciate it or if they sold it, they'd have a big tax change. It would be a significant tax change and, and very detrimental to farms. Robert Moore, an attorney with Wright & Moore, they focus their efforts on providing legal counsel to farmers and landowners in Ohio. Visit them online at ohiofarmlaw.com. 
Fran, let me introduce you to one of the most important people in Peytonville. Is she the mayor? No, insurance agent. She must be really good. The best. That's why she chooses Nationwide to help protect all the families, businesses, and dreams in Peytonville. People really count on her. Seems like she's a local celebrity. She's a local legend. Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company and Affiliates, Columbus, Ohio. Difficult harvesting conditions and bad weather can wipe out months of work. You simply can't fight Mother Nature. But with Susi Track Systems for Combine Harvesters, you can work at your own pace, whatever the soil conditions. Access your fields at the right time, work with a trusted tool, and get moving with power and effectiveness, no matter the challenge ahead. Weatherproof your harvest today with Susi Track. Contact John Hansen at 309-229-4617. You're listening to Our Ohio Weekly, this week visiting with Harrison Pittman, director of the National Agricultural Law Center, about foreign ownership of U.S. farmland. You mentioned that this has become political over the past couple of years. We're seeing more states uh, bring this to the floor and, and bring it up for discussion and try to make some changes to their laws within that state. What's the concern with foreign ownership of agricultural land across the U.S.? That's a great question. You know, the areas that get cited, uh, sure, you can go back like into the 70s. And it's almost a cookie cutter uh, from the concerns in it. There's a, the concerns that get raised are that this is a matter of national security, that so much of the land will become foreign owned, that it becomes a, a threat to the food supply. There are others make more of an economic argument that they think that this drives up land prices. Now, bear in mind, as I say those things, but there, as soon as you say that, there's somebody just as reasonable other side that says, well, it's not really a national security problem because the person couldn't own that much. You know, we export a lot. We, we produce a surplus. Uh, and, uh, and so some would say that that downplays that concern. And on the economic side, you will get a split interest there because others, what they, what one side is saying is bad. The other saying is great. You know, yeah. So I have more bidders for my property. That's a great thing. Drives the price up. And so that's a great reflection of how you sometimes this issue plays out in the political sphere. You get rational arguments on both sides and there's a lot of passion mixed in with it. And so sometimes, you know, it'll be more specific, uh, like, well, we just don't want China owning farmland. Okay. But again, now this gets into the data question and we only know what we know and we only know what's been reported to that, you know, federal reporting. So, but through that, you know, China owns a, a pretty small amount of farmland or Chinese investors, uh, you know, overall it's, it's, in the total picture, it's 0.05%, I believe. And so sometimes in that light, you know, the question will arise, is this, well, is this a solution looking for a problem? Where I've seen this progress in the past will be a concern like that is raised, but once everybody gets into the issue, well, you run into it. You're trying to pass a statute that, well, hang on, well, how is this going to treat all this, this forest land? Because we don't really mind the Canadians and, and this these large purchases. And so now you have an interest sitting over here that isn't quite comfortable with the direction of things. And then you have a lot of other interests, you know, addition to the, the legal issues and the areas of law. So many of them were brought into this from secure transactions and banking law, estates, you know, wills, estates, estate planning, contracts, property, constitutional law, all this gets pulled in there. But when you get down into the policy realm, I can't really think of another issue in, in agriculture 
that pulls in as many political interests in ag, just on the ag side. And for anyone that's interested in tackling it, personally, I would recommend a lot of dialogue that you're going to start a little early. It's going to, it's one of those thorny issues that people have to talk about. And to your question about, well, you know, effectively, I think you asked, what is the problem? I think that becomes the problem. Like when you go down to the lawmaking part of it, what specifically is the problem that we're trying to solve? I heard some of this in the in the uh, process here in Arkansas. You know, one side of it would say, well, if this is all about China, then why is it affecting what we're doing? We don't have anything to do with China, but this law is going to impact me. Uh, I don't think this solves anything. You know, that was one point of view in that. Uh, and the other side might say, well, we got to start somewhere. You know, we're working at it. And if you study these state laws, I think you begin to see exceptions and exemptions that really speak, you know, to some of those concerns. And, you know, I think my I calculated out based on the latest data that of the states that have a state statute that, you know, really tries to prohibit or restrict ownership. If you add up the foreign ownership in those states, it's roughly 16 percent of all the foreign land owned. And those are the states that actually are pushing towards trying to be more restrictive and prohibitive. Now, some of that would likely be grandfathered in, you know, I don't know how much, but I think it would be a smaller portion. You know, in other words, there was foreign ownership owned on the date some of these state laws were passed some decades ago. And if it was already owned, it could stay in that system. But most of these laws try to restrict even the ability for that land, if it's grandfathered in, it still generally will need to be sold to a non-foreign person. Uh, so it'll kind of come out of the system, if you will. Harrison Pittman joins us this week on Our Ohio Weekly. He's director of the National Agricultural Law Center, talking about foreign ownership of agricultural land. And as you talk about these state laws, I know you drilled down, uh, and it seems that maybe all 50 states uh, have some similarities but some differences. Uh, which states uh, have tougher regulations against foreign ownership? Which ones are a little bit more lenient? And where does Ohio fit into that mix? Of our 50 states, all of them are different from each other. Um, the only ones that are really similar are those that haven't passed a law at all to, you know, either to really try to restrict or prohibit or to to expressly allow or give permission to. Um, and, you know, there are roughly uh, let me look at my map here. I actually had it pulled up one, two, 13 or 14 states that really try to restrict or prohibit there are eight states that really don't have a law on the books at all. Ohio is one of those. Um, and, uh, you know, and then the rest are, they either, I, I, it was kind of hard to, to describe those because the best way probably is to say they give permission in an affirmative way to foreign ownership. They do, they still can have some hurdles or restrictions within it. And then the way that, terms get defined could really further the discussion. So a, a resident alien and an alien, those aren't the same thing. And sometimes these statutes don't distinguish well or, or they cover one but not the other. Uh, but generally, you, you have those 13 or 14 states that really try to prohibit. Iowa, I think, would be really the most restrictive or it has some exceptions to it, but um, but it, it really is the one that I think is the hardest to navigate. Um, it, it's, it doesn't fully prohibit um, foreign ownership, and they do have some, for sure. My conversation with Harrison Pittman of the National Agricultural Law Center wraps up later this hour here on Our Ohio Weekly.
This is Our Ohio Weekly. Thanks for listening. I'm Ty Higgins. You're about to hear the story of a Northwest Ohio farmer who can trace his ancestry back to the 1800s. Hear more about his deep roots in farming and a charity bike ride he hosts where you spell out Ohio in cursive to benefit his local community. Here's this week's To the Beat of Agriculture. My name's Austin Pyle. I'm from Kenton, Ohio. Also a sixth-generation farmer. With that, you know, some of the things that I enjoy to do daily is I have my um, precision ag business, Sunset Precision Farming, just, you know, always focused on trying to understand agriculture and then understand how, you know, we can, we can modify and prepare our, you know, our farms for the future. When I go back and I think in Nicholas Heil, he came over from Germany. During the early 1800s uh, there in Rhineland, Germany, there was always wars, armies constantly going through the Rhineland. They would always obviously take food or animals to feed their army. And so they were constantly going through, back and forth through the farm, kept taking their animals and their crops. And so Nicholas was like, well, A, I'm not getting the farm, and B, I want a farm. So he found a way and uh, hopped on the boat. He came over about the age of 18. He became very, very ill. He had to spend uh, one year in the hospital, and he spent uh, seven years as an indentured servant to pay for his way. After uh, serving as an indentured servant, he homesteaded the farm there in Kenton, Ohio, back in 1839. So when you go back and you look at the hardships that Nicholas had to go through in order to follow his passion for agriculture, to me, you know, will always accomplish, uh, always accomplish goals. People take pictures of different vacation stays or different parts of the U.S. or the world. You know, I tell everyone, they're like, well, where's your favorite place to go? And I said, well, actually, it's about 100 yards from the house uh, out the back lane. This kind of harvest setting where the sun sets is probably one of the most beautiful sunsets. It would be fun if we could go back and, you know, stand in the same spot that I guarantee Nicholas did uh, when he homesteaded at the farm would be very interested to know kind of, you know, what was he thinking, what was his mindset, and what was his vision? What did it look like for that area? Something we do know is we actually went back, we found some records that show some of the land that we used to own back before 1879, and there was quite a few hundred acres uh, that we had. So uh, Nicholas's vision for agriculture was definitely larger than life, I would say. To own that amount of ground in the 1850s, it's just amazing just to kind of put yourself in the mindset of Nicholas. When we jump forward to today, you know, there's farms uh, way younger than ours that's all around us uh, that are larger, but that's okay. Agriculture doesn't matter if you're a 25-acre farm or if you're a 25,000-acre farm. We're all doing the same thing. We're just trying to produce food, fiber, shelter for America and the world. With uh, bike riding, it all started back when I was in high school. Uh, one of my buddies was like, hey, you looking for a new opportunity, something to do? And we started cycling and we started racing. We'd go all over Ohio doing road races. It was an awesome opportunity to, to challenge myself. But you know, obviously I had a high school injury that um, unfortunately didn't allow me to ride for about 10 years. Through those 10 years, when I moved back home from Pennsylvania um, after college, I was like, you know what? I saw the old bike pumped up the tires. And I was like, let's go out for a ride. 
Well, what I found is my shoulder had healed enough that it allowed me to ride. I just started riding in 2013. That's when I did my first sprint triathlon down in Delaware. I just fell in love with the sport and the challenge that it that it gave me. Through that, I had such an amazing time and enjoyed so much of that triathlon community. I wanted to just bring everybody together in one spot and just kind of have that, that last ride before harvest started. And that's where the idea for the Curse of Ohio came from. So that is where, that is kind of how things progress uh, for Curse of Ohio to take place. Curse of Ohio, this past September was the fifth year that we have, we have done it. You know, the first year that we did it was just a, a, a fun ride. It wasn't for a charity. It was just, just come together, let's have a good time. And so we turned it into a charity event the second year, and we started supporting cystic fibrosis because I have, I have uh, two cousins that have CF. The now goal right now, um, definitely for next year for the ride, is um, we have you know changed gears and we are now focused on supporting Ohio Agribility 100%. So with that, our listeners feel free to, to hop on and if you're a, you know if you're in the Facebook, you know take a look at our Facebook group and that's Curse of Ohio Bike Ride. Um, so look that up and then on Bike Reg, I think it's Bike Reg uh, R E G dot com. Curse of Ohio is on there as well. We're creating a uh, 501c3 for the ride, so now that we can be a you know a nonprofit and you know just be able to gain more support, more sponsors, and you know we can continue to uh, continue uh, to grow the ride and just bring that awareness um, for Ohio agribility and. Um, also connect people with Ohio agriculture. As you heard, you can learn more about Austin's bike ride by going to Facebook and searching Cursive Ohio Bike Adventure. This segment was produced by Wessler Media. Hear their latest podcast profiles. From Cedar Point to the Zanesville Animal Escape, Ohio's home to thrilling and terrifying stories. That's Profiles, P-R-O-H Files. Download Profiles now wherever you get podcasts. I'm your host, Ty Higgins, back after this on Our Ohio Weekly. Your projects are a big deal, so use equipment that can get the job done. CAT Equipment sets the standard for the industry. The CAT product line includes more than 300 machines to handle a wide variety of duties. Ohio Farm Bureau members can save up to $5,000 when buying or leasing qualifying CAT equipment, plus a $250 credit on select work tool attachments. Learn more by visiting OFBF.org savings and click on the Caterpillar logo. Limitations and restrictions apply. Here in Ohio, we grow possibilities. By investing in the soybean checkoff, farmers can concentrate on running their operations, while the Ohio Soybean Council creates new opportunities for future generations. The Soybean Checkoff works to get new soy-based products on the market, builds relationships with international buyers, and partners with researchers to increase yield and on-farm profitability. Learn more at soyohio.org slash herewegrow. This message brought to you by Ohio Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. Brad, let me introduce you to one of the most important people in Peytonville. Is she the mayor? No, insurance agent. She must be really good. The best. That's why she chooses Nationwide to help protect all the families, businesses, and dreams in Peytonville. People really count on her. Seems like she's a local celebrity. She's a local legend. 
Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company and Affiliates, Columbus, Ohio. Farm Bureau Bank has built its entire existence around the lifestyle and needs of farmers. They're here to help grow traditions, give back to agricultural communities, and offer financial convenience for your unique way of life. Visit farmbureau.bank or call one of their personal bankers today, 800-492-3276 to learn more. That's farmbureau.bank or 800-492-3276. From sunup to sundown, Farm Bureau Bank is committed to serving you. Welcome back to Our Ohio Weekly. I'm Ty Higgins, this week talking about foreign ownership of U.S. ag land with Harrison Pittman, director of the National Agricultural Law Center. How much attention is this topic getting on the federal level? I mean, you mentioned that this got a lot of attention back in the 70s. Are we starting to see a resurgence from the federal yes. government about what might be happening here? Yeah, I think so. And there's been a recent proposal that would basically amend the Defense Production Act. And essentially what it would do is put the Secretary of Agriculture, USDA, on the acronym is CFIUS, C-F-I-U-S. It's Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And it already exists, uh, but what it does, it has a position that it can, it can review transactions, you know, mergers and acquisitions of companies. What this bill would do, and mainly what it would do, is it would put the Secretary of Agriculture in that committee. Uh, so there's an example. I just know from some of the inquiries I'm receiving from some some House and Senate offices that there's I could if there wasn't anything proposed, I, I could tell you that it, it's percolating a lot more. Uh, and then we had in the in the current FY22 appropriations process, there is a provision that really would it seeks to restrict Chinese ownership of farmland. And it specifically includes a provision that it would prevent any USDA program from being able to go to a person or an entity that has a Chinese ownership. Some of that stems from 2020. We had all this federal money, you know, from COVID, you know, fallout. You know, you had companies like JBS and Smithfield. They were, all of a sudden, they were eligible for a lot. Of, and because their their volume of business is so big, their footprint is so big, it was a lot of money. And I, I think Smithfield actually opted out. Uh, there was a lot of outcry about that. Uh, and so some of this is really you know, triggered during that. And um, I think that, I don't know how long it lasts, but I think we're in probably the fifth phase in our country's history where this is really taking more interest. And I think it's a fascinating time. I, I think that we're in a, the world is so different. You know, if you just think of, think of like the big stuff that we now just sort of take for granted compared to 1979 and 1980, the world economies are far more integrated than they were your major economies on the planet are, they generally embrace globalization uh, and more interconnectedness. That's, that's not always true in all places at all times with all issues, but as a general statement, I think that's accurate that by and large, the world's economies, the big countries have really bought into having a more interconnected economies and, you know, the way that we export, the way that we trade just in food alone has, has changed, you know, and then in the background here, as you know, we started out talking a few minutes ago, the amount of foreign-owned land, just the dirt. We're not talking about the companies. I'm not at that level. We're just talking about the, the real estate um, has dramatically increased. Uh, and, you know, it's up to everybody to figure out whether they find that to be positive or negative or, or somewhere in between. But, uh, but I think, I just think the issue is so new. And, you know, for those who are, listening to this, you know, to kind of put one other finer point on this, 
when that law was passed in 1979, it was during that same year that the United States uh, Government Accountability Office issued a report at the request of the Senate House, Senate and House Ag Committees. They, they requested GAO say, find out how much land is owned in the country by foreign interests, you know, and so forth. And they basically come back with about 90 pages of not only do we not know, we can't really find out. Like we, this information isn't really reliably out there. And we tried everything and even our own best speculations we know are wrong. So if you take that fact and then just within a short matter of weeks or months, this federal act is passed that we now have 40 years of experience with, it probably is a good time to, to, to ask, like, is there more we should do? Is there more we could do? Is it, is it good like it is? I would think there were some big questions to ask with that because for USDA to really enforce, like to really have the capacity to go back and check all this reporting and, and so oh, we don't think you have your numbers right. This isn't enough information. I think you're you're kind of talking about something that to me feels sort of like gypsa. You know, that you have to have an actual agency or a component within the department that this is what they do. They're going to have the resources. There's going to have to be uh, everything to go with it. You know, of course, states can still do their own activities, but I just think we're at a real interesting time where there is more interest in the and the economy's changed so much. And I, I tend to think, and I'm just pulling from people, you know, that, that I'm around. I think people can get their mind around that. Yeah, whatever it is, there could still become a point where too much is too much. Like, I don't have a problem with this ownership, but 35 million acres is one. But what if it's 135, regardless of where it comes from? What does that mean? Uh, and so I just think when you look at these increases and we still don't know what the last two years has been. A tremendous amount of interest. And bear in mind, we have a farm bill cycle coming. So it could be a legislative vehicle there for, for tackling some of these things. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's fascinating. Fascinating and a very weighted topic, uh, foreign ownership and agricultural land. Uh, Harrison Pittman is director of the National Agricultural Law Center. I appreciate your time and, and really appreciate the time it took for you to dig up all this information and, and share it with us here on Our Ohio Weekly. Thank you so much. Hey, you're welcome. We'll talk to you. National Rural Health Day is coming up later this week. We'll talk to the president of the Ohio Rural Health Association next on Our Ohio Weekly. Difficult harvesting conditions and bad weather can wipe out months of work. You simply can't fight Mother Nature. But with a SUSE track system for combine harvesters, it's the guarantee that you'll be in the fields at the right time. With the S-Tech 1000X, harvest with complete confidence, whatever the soil conditions. Work with a trusted tool and get moving with power and effectiveness, no matter the challenge ahead. Weatherproof your harvest today with SUSE Track. Contact John Hansen at 309-229-4617. Today, farmers and small businesses with employees continue to search for health coverage options. Ohio Farm Bureau Health Benefits Plan has teamed up with Anthem to offer businesses with 1 to 50 employees an opportunity to participate in a large, self-funded pool backed by Anthem. This health benefits plan offers competitive rates through a self-funded arrangement, fixed and predictable monthly payments, and a variety of plan designs, including deductible with coinsurance and high deductible plans. The OFB Health Benefits Plan uses Anthem's Healthcare Provider Network, one of the largest provider networks in the state. Your benefits package can affect employee satisfaction. With the Ohio Farm Bureau Health Benefits Plan, you get access to Anthem's industry-leading specialty plans, vision, life, disability, and more, in addition to medical plans. Plus, they're integrated for even more value. 
Visit OFBHealthBenefitsPlan.org for eligibility details and to receive your highly competitive quote today. That's OFBHealthBenefitsPlan.org, a self-funded medical plan for Ohio Farm Bureau members. As a farmer-owned cooperative, AgCredit knows a little extra capital can make a big difference in your operation, paying for new equipment, meeting unexpected expenses, and covering payroll. That's why they're returning $31 million to their borrower owners through their patronage program, lowering the cost of borrowing by 38%. What other lender does that? At AgCredit, they're proud to share profits with their members. Visit agcredit.net to learn more about how it pays to do business with AgCredit. Case IH is a proud supporter of Ohio Farm Bureau, and thanks to a membership benefits partnership, Ohio Farm Bureau members receive a discount of up to $500 on every qualifying Case IH tractor and piece of equipment you purchase. This discount may be used with other promotions, rebates, or offers. So join Ohio Farm Bureau and pocket up to $500 in savings. Get your discount at OFBF.org. That's OFBF.org. Ohio Farm Bureau has teamed up with Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Ohio to offer health insurance options, typically reserved for larger employers, to Ohio agribusinesses with 1 to 50 employees. The Ohio Farm Bureau Health Benefits Plan can provide you significant savings and quality health insurance benefits for your employees. For more information, eligibility, and competitive rates, visit OFBHealthBenefitsPlan.org or call 800-937-4567. Brad, let me introduce you to one of the most important people in Peytonville. Is she the mayor? No, insurance agent. She must be really good. The best. That's why she chooses Nationwide to help protect all the families, businesses, and dreams in Peytonville. People really count on her. Seems like she's a local celebrity. She's a local legend. Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company and Affiliates, Columbus, Ohio. Today, it might seem that all news headlines impact you directly. How will rural Ohio recover from a global pandemic? A county eminent domain case heads to the Supreme Court. Millions are still in need of reliable internet access. The nation's food supply chain is being challenged. For over 100 years, Ohio Farm Bureau has advocated for a strong Ohio food and farm community. And we'll continue to engage on issues important to you because your growth is our future. Farm proud and farm strong by becoming an Ohio Farm Bureau member today by visiting ohiofarmbureau.org. Welcome back to Our Ohio Weekly, and thank you as always for listening. I'm Ty Higgins. Rural health has become really a forefront issue ever since the COVID-19 pandemic, and November 18th is National Rural Health Day. To talk more about the topic is Sharon Casapula. She is co-president of the Ohio Rural Health Association. Sharon, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. For those who don't know, tell us about uh, ORHA and what you're all about. So ORHA is the Ohio Rural Health Association. We are um, a nonprofit advocacy organization that advocates and um, creates networking opportunities and educational opportunities around rural health and issues that are related to rural health. Part of what you're doing, uh, not in Ohio only, but across the country, is the Ohio Rural Health Improvement Plan. Uh, talk to us more about that and, and what that entails. Every state is required to do a health assessment regularly. And our state office of rural health was interested in doing a health assessment and a health improvement plan specific to the rural counties that are in Ohio. We've completed that assessment and looked at the health concerns and health issues that are 
relevant to our rural and our Appalachian counties in Ohio. And you can find that health improvement plan on um, the ORHA's website. It's downloadable. You can read through it. You can see the priority areas. It's, it's actually broken down by county. Uh, it's a really interesting document to take a look at. What does some of the data include that they might be getting into in more detail? So some of the specific areas that are included in the Rural Health Improvement Plan are the health priorities of those rural and Appalachian counties, and it compares the health outcomes in those counties to urban counties. Uh, So you can get a sense of how healthy our rural and Appalachian counties are compared to our urban counties. It also includes strategies to improve health outcomes and increase access to care in our rural Appalachian counties. I mentioned at the top that uh, November 18th is a pretty special day for your organization and for uh, rural health across the country. National Rural Health Day, how will you and your organization take advantage of that day and what are some other initiatives you're working on uh, on that front? We are going to, so the Ohio Rural Health Association is going to be highlighting one of our members and sharing his story of 100 years in community hospital. So um, Alan Hoker is uh, one of our board members and is the CEO of uh, Shelby Hospital in Shelby County. And they've just celebrated their 100 year anniversary. And uh, he has a really interesting story personally, as somebody who was born in a rural place, went to the city and now has come back to his rural hometown to work. And we're going to uh, share some information and hear his story on National Rural Health Day. Um, so the day is all about celebrating rural health, right? And one of the things that that we know, those of us that live in rural places, often people leave, but they they come back. There's something about our rural communities that draws people home. And, and that's the story that I hear in Alan's story too. So we're going to be highlighting that on our website. And then here at um, the Heritage College, we have, I'm the director of the Rural Urban Scholars Pathways Program. And we have an Office of Rural and Underserved Programs here, and we're going to be screening a film called The Providers, which is a documentary about rural physicians in um, New Mexico. And we're going to be filming, screening this film and then having um, a panel of rural physicians and other healthcare providers come and talk with our students about the realities of providing care in rural places. I know that for the Ohio Rural Health Association, November 18th and having that day is important, but you're hoping that it's going to be more than one day of celebration here in Ohio. Tell me what's in the works. We've been working with our state legislators to hopefully um, recognize November as National Rural Health Month for the state of Ohio, and we're hoping that 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 announcement will um, will be made shortly, so keep a lookout for that. How can listeners find out more about the organization as a whole? Well, you know, you can go to our website. We have a very robust website. It's ohioruralhealth.org. Really easy to remember. And um, on our website, you can download that rural health improvement plan. You can learn how to become a member. You can get our newsletter, which goes out quarterly. Lots of really good information and resources there. Every year, we collaborate with the State Office of Rural Health to put on the state a rural Health Conference, which is a great um, networking and educational opportunity for anybody who's interested in rural health in the state of Ohio. Sharon Casapula, she's co-president of the Ohio Rural Health Association. Thank you so much for being with us this week. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Again, their website is ohioruralhealth.org. Also want to thank Harrison Pittman, director of the National Agricultural Law Center. Had a great discussion earlier this hour about foreign ownership of U.S. ag land. 
Our Ohio Weekly is supported by Nationwide. Nationwide is on your side. And produced by Ohio Farm Bureau. Working together for Ohio farmers to advance agriculture and strengthen our communities. Be sure to visit Our Ohio Weekly's podcast page to listen to previous episodes at ofbf.org slash Our Ohio Weekly. As always, thank you for making Our Ohio Weekly a part of your weekend. Appreciate your time. I'm Ty Higgins. We'll see you down the road.